Lauren. Galad, is that you? Lauren, it's me. It's Mike. Snack fight. Who? Oh, God. I go away for one week and this whole place falls apart. Where's Galad? <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori, a senior editor at Wired. And the actual co-host of this show, we should say. <laughs> I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired and the other co-host. We are also joined this week by Wired editor-at-large Stephen Levy. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Today, we are talking about Facebook. Some of you might know that Stephen literally wrote the book on Facebook. It's called Facebook The Inside Story. It's 15 bucks on Kindle. It gets a 4.4 out of 5 rating on Amazon. You should definitely check it out. Steven covers a lot of ground in the book, but this week we're going to zoom in on one particular corner of the Facebook empire, the company's research and development labs. We're talking about that this week because Facebook just unveiled some of its concepts for new forms of human-computer interactions. Basically, the company is thinking about what sorts of new and different gadgets and devices we can use to send signals to computers. So if you throw away the keyboard and the mouse, throw away touchscreens, throw away voice controls, what's next? Lauren, you wrote a story about this for Wired this week. What problem is Facebook trying to solve here? Okay, so first off, I think it's important to note that this is in Facebook's labs, which they call their reality labs, but they are their research and development labs. So what we saw this week were concepts. And one of the concepts that really stood out was a wrist wearable. I likened it to something that looks like an iPod on the wrist. Um, it's It very much looks like a prototype. It's not sleek or sophisticated looking. It's geeky. But what Facebook has been doing is experimenting with using a sensor-filled wearable device to help you control computers sort of through the air. And the reason why Facebook is talking about this, even though it is quite literally years from us using it, is because for years, the company's motto was, you know, move fast and break things. And the company developed a lot of products without necessarily putting users or user privacy first. And it's gotten into a lot of trouble, right, over the past few years. And journalists like ourselves have been scrutinizing the company because of that. So now it seems that Facebook sort of wants to engage on these new products early before they're, you know, available to the public um, because there is something about them that's a little bit creepy and the, their ambitions are kind of sweeping, like we want to introduce this new paradigm shift in computing and that sort of stuff understandably makes people nervous. And so Facebook is like, let's pull back the curtain a little bit and, and show you this this one part of it, this, this wearable. So get the public talking about it, get people engaged and start getting used to the idea of this thing existing well before it actually exists. Right, right. And, and we should say too that like, the way that it was presented, the idea of this this wearable, which uses um, electromyography, right, to basically measure your nerve to muscle signals and then kind of let you control things in the air, right, is that it's supposed to help create new interactions in AR and VR. So a lot of people know that Facebook acquired Oculus a few years back for $2 billion. It now makes pretty good VR headsets, including the Oculus Quest 2, which is pretty groundbreaking for what it does. And the company has also been pretty open about the fact that it's working on 
AR glasses, which are going to be a little bit more lightweight than a big VR headset. But what happens when you start to wear these heads up displays is that you don't quite know what to do with your hands, particularly in a VR headset when you can't see your hands. But even in AR, like I've used HoloLens and you're supposed to use air gestures with your hands. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago on the Gadget Lab, like it can get pretty awkward. So part of their goal, I think, in developing this wearable was to say, hey, this is what you could use to gesture in AR and VR. But I, I actually think it's the part, and I'd love to hear Steven's thoughts on this. I actually think it's the part where they say like, yeah, but this is like not just AR VR. This is something we're going, we envision people using like instead of the keyboard or it's a new version of the mouse or it's going to be like an air interface you use to control your home appliances that I think is a lot, is a lot more interesting. Well, you know, I actually, I think I was the first journalist to actually use this technology, and this is before Facebook got hold of it, this technology began in a company called Control Labs, and right. it was founded by bought. a guy named Thomas Reardon, mm -hmm. who was a former Microsoft guy. He was Bill Gates' assistant who helped clue Bill Gates to how important the internet was. And he's a fascinating guy. He left technology and got a degree in the classics and then got a degree in neuroscience. He became a neuroscientist and started this company that had these wristbands to basically pick up the signals from the brain. When your brain tells your hand to do something, uh, it goes along your arm and he sort of hijacks that signal so it could go out to a computer. So when I tested it, Literally, people in his lab were typing with this thing by just like twitching their fingers a little, mm -hmm. you know, the kind of little twitching you give before you're about to, you know, like throw a baseball or something like that. Um, so when Facebook got wind of this technology, uh, it made a very big play to, to buy the company and spend just south of a billion dollars, I think. Um, maybe it didn't want to put so many zeros on it to get government scrutiny um, and brought Reardon and his team into Facebook, into the, their reality labs. And this is the first glimpse we've had of what they've done with it. And it is, you know, kind of a interface play as Reardon envisioned it, but it's also part of this vision, as you say, that happened when Facebook bought Oculus, that Mark Zuckerberg was convinced that in 10 years or so, this was going to be the next big paradigm and Facebook had to be ahead of it. Um, Facebook almost missed the mobile revolution. They were late to it and they had to do this big, big push to be able to get ahead of it. They were successful in that. But Zuckerberg told himself, I never want that to happen to me again. When the next big paradigm shift comes, I want to be on top of it. I want to be ahead of the game. And when he bought Oculus, he thought he was in position to then throw more billions of dollars of research into the effort. And when we were all going to use augmented reality, virtual reality, there would be Mark Zuckerberg sitting on all these patents and technology that would make Facebook the king. Yeah, it's uh, they can afford to take those big gambles on what is going to be the new technology in the future. And if nine out of 10 of them don't pan out, then that's still kind of okay. Yeah, but it's interesting because when he bought Oculus, it was 2014, and he was saying, everyone said, wow, a 10-year bet, that's amazing. Well, in 10 years, we're not all going to be 
using virtual reality instead of our keyboards. Uh, so it'll take a little longer if it happens. So Lauren, um, this device is, as we said, it's a human computer interface. It's not a brain computer interface. Can you talk a little bit about what the differences are there and why people might get confused when they see this prototype in action? Right. I think this is an important thing to note because I think one of the natural responses you would have if you looked at these Facebook prototype videos that they've put out this week is you'd say, oh, Facebook is reading your mind or maybe wants to control your mind. You know, it depends on which which direction that control is going in. But um, there are like a few different overlapping technologies in this area of you know, human-computer interaction. So that field, human-computer interaction, is decades old, right? And it's often referred to as HCI. And that just basically means the way we as humans interact with computers. And then there's this emerging field of BCI, which is brain-computer interaction. And that is something that's often referred to, like, say, what Elon Musk is doing with Neuralink, right, which involves a more invasive implant in the brain and then would involve some kind of like direct control from the mind to the computer. Um, Facebook, by the way, has also kind of experimented with BCI. Um, they partnered with UCSF back in 2019 to run a study that involved more invasive, you know, implants. Um, but then there are kind of these sensor layers that sit on top of the body that oftentimes research are using to basically interpret neuroelectrical signals and then use those impulses, interpret those impulses and process them to do some type of computing. So there's something like EEG, which a lot of people, you know, you've probably seen. It's electroencephalography where you are wearing a kind of like um, cap and the cap has all these different nodes on it, right? And it's an electrophysiological monitoring system that interprets electrical activities of the brain. And that's like typically used just in research and that kind of thing. Um, and then there's EMG, which we're talking about with this wearable device, and in this case, going on the wrist, but that's electromyography, and it's basically interpreting these nerve to muscle signals. And so there are like varying levels of invasiveness here that you need to consider when you're thinking about measuring your body's activities and how that is signaling something to a computer. And I think that in some cases, it's very much like edging into brain reading. Um, and in other cases, it's, it's there, there are steps removed, right, from like what's happening and sort of the nerve to muscle signals and what that's telling the computer. And I think in this case, what Facebook is showing off is the, is the latter. How, how does Facebook gonna deal with misinformation from the brain to your wrist? <laughs> <laughs> that gonna, is an excellent question. Users are going to have to flag it. Um, and actually, we'll we'll talk about some of the ethical considerations in the second half of the show. But uh, I do have sort of one more question for, for the both of you, which is that, you know, we've all been reporting on this stuff for a long time. And people have been trying to do completely hardware-free computer interfaces for years, right? Like gesture controls and just using hands, using eye tracking. Most attempts at this are a lot more ambitious than the technology allows. So I'm wondering if Facebook's huge bank account and it's basically unlimited resources would make a difference here. Or are there certain barriers to completely hardware-free computer interfaces that money can't dissolve? Well, like a lot of things, the idea to do this kind of stuff came way before we had the computer power and AI and you know uh, 
and sensor power to actually implement it. And it was like in the 1970s, Nicholas Negroponte and, you know, the precursor to the Media Lab, he had this room where you'd go in and, you know, without any hardware on you, you'd be able to control uh, an interface of, of, of a computer. And it took a very long time before uh, we could do that. But now, uh, you know, we have games where people pick up your motions and it's pretty accurate. Um, and I think that uh, Facebook specifically argued that it's time now to tackle the remaining hurdles for that to be real. And they have this lab in Seattle, which is trying to make those remaining breakthroughs, which they feel they've identified to make this stuff into reality. I couldn't have said it better than Steven. All right. Well, we're going to take a break right now. And then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Facebook. Welcome back. If the idea of giving Facebook access to your neural pathways makes you uneasy, you are probably not alone. Facebook has been criticized for violating user privacy and allowing disinformation to fester on its platforms. Public trust in the company isn't exactly great. Now, Stephen, you wrote the book on Facebook. So I'm going to ask you, should we be worried about wearing something made by Facebook? Well, I think we have to look at it with great scrutiny. A few years ago, Facebook came out with a device called the Portal. And basically, they put a camera in your living room, bedroom, wherever you put the thing. And everyone jumped on it saying, you know, this is the last company we want to buy this device from. And uh, I think originally didn't sell well. And then eventually, the technology wasn't too bad. And it started selling more. Uh, I think Though uh, Facebook's gathering information is sort of coming to a head with government regulation, and I think that maybe in the long term, by the time some of the things we're talking about now come to fruition, Facebook will be constrained in what it can do with our information. So uh, we just have to worry about anyone reading our brains, not particularly Facebook. Yeah, one of the things that I'm finding interesting about this particular corner of Facebook, their reality labs, is that the executive who's leading the team, Andrew Bosworth, he is someone who um, seems to be pretty open. Uh, this team has posted blog posts fairly frequently about their you know, big sweeping plans, their 10-year vision. And uh, Andrew Bosworth, or Boz, as he is known throughout the industry, or Boz Tank, as he is known on Twitter, is actually an active Twitterer. And he engages a lot on that platform. And he engages with reporters. And sometimes it's it gets it gets pretty feisty. Uh, and and sometimes he tweets things that I'm like, I am just really not quite sure what he is talking about there. And I would love to poke at that a little bit more. Um, but what what's happening, I think, is, is kind of what I referred to earlier, is that Facebook knows it has a trust problem. And so it is trying to engage on some of these emerging technologies early. But it's also this dynamic where they say a lot without saying much. And that's certainly the experience I had earlier this week when I had the chance to ask Andrew Bosworth about this new wrist device. Like I said, you know, should people trust Facebook? And one of the things he said is, well, you know, we have to earn trust. And, and then he kind of went off about that. And I'm paraphrasing, you know, and then I and then I said, so how do you earn that trust? And the answer, you know, 
there were some platitudes there. It was, oh, you know, you have to, um, you can't surprise people and you have to, it takes a long time and trust arrives on horseback. And what is it? Trust arrives on foot and leaves on horseback as the saying goes or Mm -hmm. something like that. And it still didn't seem very clear to me exactly how Facebook is planning to both acknowledge that it has uh some pretty serious misinformation and in the past privacy problems. So it seems to me that Facebook still has some work to do when it comes to acknowledging that people are going to be very skittish about any kind of wearable device that's going to interpret your, you know, your physiological signals and um, offer more specifics on how it plans to handle the data that's, that's being processed on these devices. Yeah, I'm glad you talked about Bosworth. He's a really interesting character in the history of Facebook. He came over relatively early. He was involved Mm -hmm. in the original news feed, uh, helping get that out the door. And that was a really controversial product when it first came out, had a lot of privacy concerns. And he was about to take a big sabbatical when Zuckerberg decided that he really needed him to figure out how they could make money in the mobile age. Uh, Zuckerberg literally stopped Bosworth from leaving the airport with his family to go on the sabbatical and to take charge of the ads for mobile and figure out how to do that. And uh, he did that. He's a, a controversial guy. He's very outspoken. And sometimes he gets in the trouble at Facebook, uh, you see him, he looks like Ben Roethlisberger, a big bulky guy. Um, <laughs> he does. But, but, he, but he grew up in Silicon Valley and, and, and right in the middle of the valley and his family's been there for over 100 years. So he really has technology in his veins. He also had a farm. He's, I think he won a 4-H award for a cow or something like that. Um, but he's a <laughs> Is he's this a in big, the book? I feel like I need yeah, to read about yeah. the cow. Okay. You, get, you learn a lot from my book, Lauren. Um, <laughs> I promise you, I promise you, Stephen, one day I will get through all 600 pages. (laughs) And uh, uh, when the the Oculus division was in trouble, the culture of it was a gaming company. It wasn't taking off um, for complicated reasons. They got rid of the founder of Oculus, uh, the guy in charge of technology, Palmer Lucky. He was basically thrown out for his politics. And uh, Zuckerberg again went to Bosworth and said, I want you to fix this. Mm-hmm. And he changed it. The Oculus essentially is, is no more as a division. It's called the, the, I guess, the reality, the augmented and virtual reality part of Facebook and the hardware part. And uh, Bosworth is in charge and he's made some sense of it. Um, he's also made a little bit of controversy recently. Um, I want to take you guys back to the end of February when notes from a company-wide Facebook meeting leaked. BuzzFeed News reported on some of the details from that meeting. Uh, so we already know it's been widely reported and, and Boz has been very vocal about the fact that Facebook is going to release a set of AR glasses this year. Mm-hmm. Um, in this February meeting, Boz noted that Facebook has been considering building facial recognition technology into those AR glasses. Uh, during the meeting, as reported by BuzzFeed News, one unnamed employee raised some concerns. They asked Boz if users would be able to mark their faces as, as unsearchable. Um, They also argued that facial recognition in glasses could cause real world harm, like people stalking each other because they can see personal information in their in their AR glasses about the other person. Um, I'm wondering if these fears are widespread, like would normal Facebook 
users worry about these things or just people like us or the tech savvy people who pay attention to the controversy around facial recognition? I'm going to let Stephen talk about some of the internal dynamics and politics at Facebook because he is so well informed on that. But if I can just make a note quickly about some of the technology we're talking about. This pertains both to AR classes and then this wrist prototype that we saw this week. Um, generally, what's happening is, you know, there's a healthy amount of artificial intelligence that's being used to process this data um, and machine learning. And, and what we're starting to see happen with some hardware is that um, the machine learning can happen quote unquote on device, which means it happens on the computer itself and it isn't necessarily being sent to the cloud and then back down to the device in order to process um, all of these sort of algorithms that are being used to like make the devices smarter, make them intelligent. And generally processing this information on device is considered more private because you're just simply not sending as much personal data to the cloud. Um, and Apple, I think, you know, is one example of a company that's been pretty committed to performing machine learning functions on device. One of the questions that it can, when it comes to AR glasses or wrist wearable is how much of that is happening on device. And that's one of the questions that I did ask Boz this week because they sort of gestured at it, no pun intended, um, you know, about how they were going to handle all this this computation. And he basically said, like, we're going to do as much as possible on device but he wouldn't commit to how much computation they were going to end up offloading to the cloud, in which case like you're just sort of sharing the data in a different way. And Facebook, that's what Facebook does. Facebook shares data, right? So they don't sell it, Senator, but they share it. So um, I think a lot of these concerns are going to come down to yes, not only the company's sort of internal policies on how they handle data, but some of some of this is technical, like how much of it is going to be processed on if like facial recognition would, for example, would be processed on a set of AR glasses or if it's going to rely ultimately on cloud services. Yeah, I think that that debate goes on within Facebook a lot. And what part of what matters really is how important it is to Facebook and facial recognition is kind of a third rail for not just Facebook, but a lot of companies that are involved in AI. Google's one of them. Um, and I think uh, there's a company called you know, Clearview, is it? Um, which uh, it has its own service that people are terrified of. It's a way to pick, a, pick anyone's face out. But if you have AR glasses, the fact is, it's a value to you to know, particularly if you're in a group where your friends are around and you're not very good at faces and names to say, oh, that's the person you met a year ago at the same conference. Uh, that could be a, a useful thing. And the question is, how do you do that while maintaining privacy? And I think that Facebook is very poorly positioned to make the case that we should accept it because we don't trust Facebook very much. Right. I mean, some of the scenarios you think about just I think there was quite literally a Black Mirror episode about this where people are walking around and you can sort of see each other's social statuses like above their heads as you're as you're walking around. And, and like that even seems like not as scary as potentially just someone stalking you because they figured out 
all this personal information about you because they looked at you through AR glasses. Like that vision of the future, frankly, is pretty terrifying. Yeah. And Boz did say um, that the company would have a public conversation, to use his words, about facial recognition in AR glasses. Um, I'm just I'm curious about what that conversation would look like. Like, would it happen on Facebook? Would it happen in the media? Oh, the conversation will be great. But then Facebook is going to do what it wants to do. <laughs> Is that, is that what's happened in the past? Well, there's been a number of times when there's been conversations. I write about it in my book, Facebook, The Inside Story, where, <laughs> where these kinds of issues are batted around. People tell Mark Zuckerberg, as lieutenants tell him, you know, maybe this isn't a great idea for us to do. Um, and you know, Zuckerberg takes it all in and then does what he wants to do, which is often against their advice. Uh, it happened with um, the degree to which they shared information in 2010 in their you know, uh, platform. And that's what got them in trouble with Cambridge Analytica. I wish someone would write a book about this. <laughs> I wish someone would read the book about it. <laughs> It's available at your local library. It's available on uh, all the places where you buy books. But anyway, Stephen, thanks for sharing your knowledge with us. And we know that the book uh, came out last year, but uh, we're we're grateful that you were able to yeah. bring some of that knowledge into 2021 because it's still Thank relevant, you. still relevant. Well, the, paper, the paperback just came out. So, oh. Stephen, yeah. I actually think you were the last person we had in studio to talk about your book. Oh. Is that right? Yeah, that was great. This is yeah. our 50th remote recording. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we will do our recommendations. All right. Welcome back to the final segment of the show where we recommend a thing that you, the listener, might be interested in. It could be a movie, a book, a show, a website, a news story on the Internet. Let's start with Stephen. Stephen, what is your recommendation? Well, I've been reading a lot of fat books in the last year. Guess why? And some of them are biographies, like on Jimmy Carter, um, Obama's memoir. But lately, I'm in the middle of Tom Stoppard, uh, A Life. It's a biography by Hermione Lee. Uh, it's a big, long book that tells you everything you want to know about Tom Stoppard. And I want to know a lot about him because he's a fantastic playwright. I'm really sorry that the pandemic stopped his most recent play from coming to Broadway and stopped everyone from going to Broadway. Um, but he's a fascinating person who has a real skill with bringing across scientific concepts into dramatic humanistic plays and, and complicated history. So if you're at all a fan of theater or certainly of Tom Stoppard, uh, go get this book and read it for the next like eight months, whatever it takes. <laughs> it's that big, huh? It's like longer than Facebook, the inside story. <laughs> so it's a door stoppered. Oh, uh, yeah. here. Um, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Mike, you're back on as co-host. Hey, now. Move over, take Galad. That, take that, Galad. Uh, yeah. Lauren, Lauren Wait, what is your recommendation? I did have one quick question for Stephen. Stephen, have you ever written a play? Um, No. I think you should write the Facebook play. That'd be interesting. That'd be interesting. But I, I've really gone good. to a lot of plays, but not in the last year. Well, if any agents are listening right now and you're looking for a playwright to write Facebook The Inside Story, I highly recommend my friend Stephen Levy here. <laughs> I think that uh, uh, Boz would definitely be a character in that play. Oh, yes. He'd be great. Uh, Lauren, what is your recommendation? 
Um, who would play Boz? All right, sorry. Um, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> All right, since we're talking about wearables, I have to recommend... It's a little thing, but it's a big thing. The hand-washing timer on Apple Watch. So I thought it was pretty creepy when Apple first revealed this. I remember Kevin Lynch on stage at one of their... Actually, it must have been... Was it a virtual event or was it in person? My gosh, I'm trying to remember now how long ago this was. I think it was a virtual event because I think yeah, it was... Yeah, why, why, why would it be in person if he's talking about hand-washing, right. which you do after COVID? Unless they were like really ahead of the curve... I mean, I would have to look up the date of when this was, but Kevin Lynch was demonstrating how you could rub your hands together under the sink and then the watch would interpret these squishing, soaping sounds. And I was like, I do not like this vision of the future. It's freaking me out. But I've activated it on the Apple Watch and I have to say, it's really helpful. Like washing your hands is one of those things like brushing your teeth where you think you're doing it for a really long time and you're actually not doing it for long enough so as soon as you start washing your hands under the sink the apple watch starts a it just automatically starts a timer and it counts down to 20 seconds and then when you're all done you get like a you know confetti and it's basically like you did it and and you feel like a champ um and and i have to say i also now have a smart toothbrush that tells me when i've brushed for two minutes and i feel like a champ when i use that too so um yeah, this is a free application if you already have the Apple Watch and you have to have the Apple Watch Series 4 or later and you activate it by going into the My Watch app on your iPhone first and going to the hand washing feature and then you sort of activate it so that the watch will automatically detect when you're washing your hands. Um, but if you do have an Apple Watch and you haven't turned this feature on yet, I do recommend it. If you don't have an Apple Watch, you can always sing a song, right? So what's your 20 second song? Some people say happy birthday, but I think happy birthday is actually shorter than 20 seconds. You're supposed to sing it twice. Yeah, so sing it twice. You know at least two people who are having a birthday, so. <laughs> Mike, what's your recommendation? Um, I would like to recommend a television show that uh, is a couple years old, but season two is about to start at the end of this month. It's on Showtime and it's called City on a Hill. Um, season two of City on a Hill starts March 28th. And if you have Showtime or if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch the whole first season to prepare yourself. And I'm recommending it because it was really like it flew in under the radar. It is a very tense and very well-written and very well-acted crime drama. And it takes place in Boston, my hometown. Uh, all of the characters are um, people who are based on people who were in real life in like the early 90s in Boston politics. Uh, and it's basically about, uh, it's like cops and robbers and a DA who's trying to do good and clean up the city. Uh, it stars Kevin Bacon in uh, the role of the FBI agent at the center of the story. And it is primo Kevin Bacon. It is Kevin Bacon like you've never seen before. It is USDA grade A Bacon on this show. I can't get enough of his character, his little asides, his little like winks that he does. It's just amazing. He deserves all the Emmys. Uh, so City on a Hill. Okay. Definitely check it out in preparation for season two, which starts in a couple of weeks. Does Kevin Bacon have a Boston accent in this? Everybody has a Boston accent in this. He's from Philadelphia, you know. Yes. And he does a fantastic, he disappears in the role. He does a fantastic Boston accent. I can spot a bad Boston accent from this side of the 128. And uh, he does not have a bad one. It is very what does bad. a bad Boston accent sound like? I'm not even going to do it. 
It's somebody who says like, I packed the can, have it, yeah. Right, yeah, right. That's like, yeah. Don't, My, uh, don't do so, that. So yeah, I, used to, I used to date someone from Boston. Actually, like in general, I've dated people from Massachusetts. It's a whole <laughs> other story. But we used to have this joke, we would say, which is like a, not a good joke. But we would say like, okay, so Mike, for example, um, what do you call when someone uh, sticks their hand in a socket and they get a bunch of a little electrical shack shacks right and then we'd say what do you call a big fish that's swimming in the ocean off the shore of cape cod that you definitely don't want to interact with a whale no it's a shack <laughs> <laughs> sorry guys it's really bad <laughs> well now i'm gonna go call my parents so i can hear their boston accents <laughs> All right. Well, that's our show. Stephen, thanks again for coming on. It was great to have you back. That's great to be on. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback about the show, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. This show is produced by the amazing Boone Ashworth. Goodbye, and we will be back next week. Here's another one. So what do you call a very popular whitefish that people have often like sometimes it's referred to as bacala um what kind of fish is that cod Mm -hmm. and what do you do when it's someone's birthday and you forgot to get a gift and you run to cvs and the last minute you have to get a e-cod or here's another one here's another one (laughs) what do you call the tan colored pleated pants that you know men often wear just sort of like as a very khakis khakis Uh and when you are running out the door and you've lost something and you need to go somewhere inevitably the thing you've lost is your skateboard khakis <laughs> <laughs>